Thank you for downloading our podcast. Make sure you subscribe to get new ones every week. And don't forget to check out First United Methodist Sweetwater's website and social media. Now, here is Pastor Ryan Strebeck. This week, I was reading in the news about something I'd never heard of called the Havana Syndrome. Uh, and you may be familiar with this, uh, but it was, I was reading a Wall Street Journal article about um, reporting as many as 200 United States diplomats who suffer from this mysterious uh, neurological ailment. And it's, it was this time, it was in Geneva and Paris, uh, times before, it's been uh, other places. And so uh, it is, they don't know exactly what it is. They can't figure it out. They're starting to get to the bottom of it. And of course, what the CIA knows, they're not going to be able to tell us anyways, but they're working on it. Uh, the point that it maybe that it reminded me of, though, it made me think of this is how, this is a great example of how evil works in the world. It's, it's mysterious, it's crafty, it doesn't seek to come out and tell you everything about itself, but it works behind the scenes. It's always subterranean, trying to find the cracks and the little footholds and work around. And it's the perfect ex- example of why evil can be so terrifying. And it doesn't, tr- evil doesn't have logic. You know, it never makes sense. We always shake our heads and go, why could someone do that? Or how could someone do that? Or what brought someone to that point where they felt like they had to do that? And the whole point of evil is it's nonsensical. It never makes sense. Uh, evil is not its own being. It doesn't have its own power. So it has to leech off of goodness. It has to, uh, it's a privation of the goodness that we see around us. So it's always working in that way. And in that sense, it's always cowardly. It's always shifty. Uh, there's always corruption. It's something is being corrupted behind the scenes. That's what evil looks like. And already in Luke's gospel, we have been introduced to evil, uh, and it reminds us of the evil that we see around us. And so in the very beginning, uh, we see in the opening chapter this reference in 179, uh, a reference to people, all of us, people in the world who are sitting in darkness and the shadow of death. And the idea is Christ is, of course, being born into this world where we are sitting in darkness and in the shadow of death. Uh, and then we read about this character. We hear about this character, Herod. Uh, right before Jesus goes into the wilderness, we read about this character, Herod, who has John the Baptist put in prison. Why? Because John the Baptist is exposing what in Herod's life? Evil. It specifically says that. Uh, it, you know, John was rebuking him for evil in his life, and so he put John in prison. That's also how evil works, right? It's cowardly. It doesn't know how to handle truth, and so it shuts it out. It seeks to smother it and undermine it. And so evil is already at work in the early pages of the story of Jesus trying to thwart God's plan to send light into the world. So we see it. We know immediately. This is not an idealistic story. This is a story that happens in real time, real evil, and this is a real thing. So in chapter 4, after these allusions to evil and these examples of evil, we have a character who steps onto the stage, out from behind the curtain of all this evil, and Luke gives him a name, the devil. We see in this account that the devil is like the evil that we see around us, crafty, shifty, full of lies, bent on destruction, interested in disrupting God's plans, and he is, like all cowardice and evil, opportunistic. Luke even says that. He left Jesus until a more opportune time. He's 
finding Jesus in this moment when Jesus is vulnerable, right? Jesus has been in the wilderness 40 days, and Luke tells us, not surprisingly, he's hungry. He's hungry. He's by himself, and he's in the wilderness. This is the classic place. You know, you're out there on your own. You're isolated. And so that was the opportune moment. The devil thought, this is when I'm going to really get to the Son of God. So the evil we face can feel overwhelming, uh, discouraging, like the darkness is surely going to win. And so my question this morning is, what hope do we have when the scene looks this way? When we know this is a scene that we're living in, that we're working in, how can we possibly be obedient to God against all odds? You know, on a lighter note, this is like, this is like the Patriots are feeling last night uh, about halftime, and they're going, how did this happen? How did this happen? They, they don't, all they can do is score touchdowns. They touch the ball, they score a touchdown. We, so I know, I know there's one, one person in the room who's going to be happy that I used a football metaphor this morning. So uh, there you go. There's a merry belated Christmas. But, but really, that's how you feel sometimes. It's like you come to something and you think it's going to be one thing, and then you look around and you go, this is not what I expected at all. And this is how evil tends to get the best of us and can scare us and make us you know, fall back and, and sort of shrink back. So the first bit of good news that we can't forget in a story where Jesus, as, as Ryan prayed, where Jesus has been tempted just like we are and yet without sin, so he's there. And the first bit of good news that we see is that, uh, of course, Jesus is alone. There's no other people around. But we see that there's some other uh, agent who's at work, who's, who's involved in this process, and that is the Holy Spirit. So Jesus, uh, Luke tells us, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan where he was baptized, and he's led by the Spirit into the wilderness. And then the narrative, this little section closes with Jesus returning to Galilee in the power of the Spirit. So God is present, and the Spirit is always involved in our lives. The Spirit is always available. The Spirit lives inside of us. We never face evil alone. We never uh, start from ground zero, uh, but we are full of the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit is leading us. Even when they're in the midst of something that seems like it's impossible, uh, Christ is present with us, and the Spirit is at work. So we turn to the text. If you'd like to follow along, it was read for us earlier, Luke 4, uh, 1 through 13, and we're just asking this question. I mean, how, how can we be obedient uh, in a world where evil seems to win so often? And how can we face these temptations that we face? How can we overcome? And so uh, Jesus is uh, interacting with the devil. The devil approaches him. Uh, of course, he's hungry. We talked about that. He says, if you're really the son of God, uh, command this stone to become bread. You know, he goes right for the vulnerable place. If you're really the son of God, remember what did, what did the father's voice say at Jesus' baptism? You are my beloved son, and with you I am well pleased. So what's the first thing the devil says? If you're really the son of God, right, if you really have this purpose and this belonging, if you really belong to God, then why don't you go and perform this miracle? You ought to be able to. And Jesus turns and, and answers, uh, man does not live by bread alone. It is written, right? This great rebuke, it is written. And then the devil takes him, shows him all the kingdoms in a moment in time. I'll give you all authority, all this glory. It all belongs to me and I'll give it to you. All you have to do is worship me. Uh, That's all you've got to do is turn and worship. And Jesus, of course, turns and answered, it is also written that you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. And so the devil takes Jesus to Jerusalem 
and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and says, if you're the son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, uh, he will command his angels concerning you and to guard you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. The devil, of course, is quoting scripture. He's quoting Psalm 91 to Jesus. The temple is the symbol not only of God and humanity meeting together, but it's also the symbol of security. You know, we talk about that. We come to worship. It ought to feel a little bit like a refuge. God is our refuge, our ever-present help in a time of trouble. We say this in the Psalms. Well, Psalm 91, what, is, what does it say? That, that this is the place where the people of God find refuge. The, the people who dwell in the shadow of the Most High. That's what Psalm 91 says. So it's like the devil going, okay, if you really dwell in the shadow of the Most High, you know, if you really are there and secure, then surely it won't be a problem just to tell uh, God, hey, I'm going to pounce off the pinnacle of this temple and no harm's going to come to me. And Jesus says, okay, that's, that's nice. That's crafty. I'm onto your game. Uh, the scriptures also say, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And uh, at that moment, the devil departs. Now, we recognize these temptations. You know, we recognize these temptations, these attacks on our identity, on our personhood, these attacks on uh, what we're up to in the world, the temptation to want to, you know, test God and to want to get out there and do things our way. And Jesus just calmly asserts these true things that are more true than the lies, that the, these half-truths that the devil is offering and kind of paves the way for us. And we're not surprised that Jesus, these tests that the, the devil is bringing, they really parallel uh, Israel's tests in the wilderness. So if you read Deuteronomy 6 through 8, these chapters, you will see these exact same things coming up. This is where we find these answers that Jesus gives. Uh, you should, man does not live by bread alone. Uh, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. These things come from Deuteronomy, and this was the test that was given to Israel, but they failed, right? Think of all the times that they missed the boat, that they knew what they were supposed to do, and they missed it in the wilderness. So they were tested, they were tempted, and they stumbled. And so we, so many times, we know what that, we know Israel's story because we know what that's like to be tempted in this way and then to stumble, you know, to get caught off guard and to stumble. And so the similarities to Israel and Jesus' test in the wilderness, um, they, they, they end at the point where Jesus is perfectly obedient. And so we know, again, it's the good news that Jesus was tempted as we are, and yet he remains perfectly obedient obedient. So Jesus resists the evil that he sees where Adam failed before him, where Israel fails, where we have failed. And so the Jesus emerges and gives us this real hope as the pioneer, uh, as the writer of Hebrews says, is the pioneer of our faith. You know, he steps out ahead of us and says, okay, I'm going to show you how to do this. Now, this is very important. This is something we'll talk about in our confirmation class over the next couple of weeks, but we get into this discussion about the nature of Jesus. And in theology, we call this the hypostatic union. This is the, that Jesus is fully God and fully man. And how can this happen? It's a mystery. It's like the Trinity. It's all this stuff. So we, you know, we really wrestle with that and we talk about it a lot. It's very, very important because if Jesus is not fully man, then he's not really vulnerable in the wilderness. But if, as the scriptures teach, and as we believe in the church, if Jesus, Jesus is truly vulnerable, if there's a possibility that Jesus would fail, then it's a whole game changer. That means Jesus is vulnerable, and then it means he can exhibit true bravery. It means he can join in the Holy Spirit, and he can emerge here as victorious and truth-telling, and that gives us hope. It makes us realize, because sometimes we'll just say like, oh, well, we can never do that, because that's Jesus, of course. He's like a superhero, and we don't have access to that. 
But what does Jesus tell us, you know, in John's gospel? You will do greater things than me because I've sent the Holy Spirit. So this is a real opportunities that we have. It's very important that we remember that Jesus is vulnerable. He's vulnerable in this moment, and he emerges victorious. So against all odds, Jesus passes the test. He paves the way for us and reminds us that true faith is always tested faith. Uh, it always has this tested quality about it. It's always something that's been forged like metal in a fire. It, it, it takes on this new strength because of what it's been through and how it's responded. And you can notice this, right? We see this kind of faith around us. We see that. We go, okay, that's a, that's a faith that has been tested and has come out shining. Uh, not because it's, it's been an easy faith, but because it's been a quality about it that when it faced trials, it emerged strong. So... How do we, against all odds, overcome evil, move through life when the cards seem like they are so often stacked against us? The evil around us, the corruption around us, the stuff that's going on in our workplace that drives us nuts that we know is wrong, we can't do anything about, all those things. What do we do? Jesus, out of his vulnerability and his obedience to God, exhibits a key virtue for us. I think if we had to describe it, one of the ways we could talk about what Jesus is doing here, he's paving the way for us to follow him. And I think the virtue that we see in Jesus right here in this moment is courage or fortitude. And courage is that thing that you only find out if you have courage if you're being tested. Otherwise, you just don't know. Uh, And so uh, traditionally, uh, courage is that thing it's kind of best defined as the readiness to fall in battle. Well, you know, you don't know that until you've been out there in the mix. And so that's what's happening here, that Jesus wins because of a culture of courage, a constitution of courage that he has access to, that he has cultivated. He is prepared. And uh, so courage or fortitude is at heart. It's this readiness to die in battle. It's facing the acknowledgement of the possibility of injury of death and not shrinking back. So it's, it's uh, Jesus knows that the world is not this, you know, just sweet, easy place, but he's facing the darkness and death and he responds courageously still. So in fact, we can't have real courage without the possibility of injury. This is why Jesus' vulnerability is so important. Uh, the great uh, German theologian Joseph Pieper says that angels can't have courage. Angels can't be brave because they are not vulnerable. And so this is where, again, Jesus is different. He's vulnerable, so he has the ability to be brave. We are vulnerable. And so we have the ability to be brave through this courageous activity. So uh, Pieper says that fortitude or courage presupposes vulnerability. I also love that he says, all fortitude stands in the presence of death. Courage is basically that thing that allows us to face death, to stand in the presence of death, whether we're five years old or 95 years old, and say, okay, death, I see you. I see you that you're the real enemy. Paul says this is the last enemy. This is the ultimate epitome of evil is death, and I've stared you in the face, and I see what you've got, and I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid, not because I'm in denial, but I see, and I see this is real, but I'm standing here from the perspective of resurrection and of life, and so I'm, I'm, not, I'm not going down like that. You know, I can see you, death, and I'm not walking away. And so this, the key, really, then, to living in a broken world where evil has been unleashed, uh, I think, in this way we see in this story, is if we can find the courage of Jesus. You know, what would it look like for us as the church to find and rediscover the courage of Christ? 
If we can do that, uh, I think we have a great torch to carry in the world. And so we as a church, as Christians, we begin to kind of take on this willingness to face the darkness. Uh, Christians, of course, we're supposed to be the ones that love life. Right, we, we're, we're not walking into considering the possibility of martyrdom you know, throughout the ages because we hate our lives. We love life. We should be, of all people, we, we have this value, this, we see that life is holy and it's a gift from God and so we love everything about life that we love. Um, we know God loves and we celebrate that and we hold that up and we love life so much and we recognize where life comes from so much that, that Christians are able to stand and hold our lives in our hands and say, We love life so much, and we love God, the source of life, so much that for the sake of God and for the sake of goodness and the gospel, uh, we are willing to actually lay our lives down that more life can grow. This is is the mystery of the gospel. This is what Jesus says. If you love your life too much, so much that you won't lay it down, then you're actually not going to live. So... We all have a huge part to play in this idea of, of finding and developing this culture of courage and in the church. We all have a role to play because of uh, this sort of courage. It is, I think, developed uh, as a part of a culture. You know, it's not something that happens overnight. It's not something that we, you know, like the old uh, He-Man story when I was a kid, we watched the cartoon, you know, He-Man was all ordinary and everything was fine, but then He-Man would reach this moment where he had this real test in front of him. He'd climb up on the mountain, you know, and then there's this cosmic interaction with lightning and he would say, what? I have the power, right? And he would scream it out and it was, it was all happening. You knew as a kid, it's like, okay, it's about to get real because He-Man has the power now. Uh, but that's not how it works. That's not how courage works. We don't just go through life normal and then all of a sudden courage, you know, something comes along and we say, oh, let me go, you know, get my He-Man power. But it's cultivated. You know, we just grow it over time and it's part of our culture. And if we do our jobs and we work and we love and we serve, then we're just going to we're just going to have it. And a lot of times we won't even know it until it's needed. And then we'll look around and say, wow, that was an exhibition of courage. And thanks be to God. So this culture of bravery, I think, flows from a people, from a church that knows that we are loved by God. It allows us to face evil and to face death and to live as resurrection witnesses. Our mission is to be a culture of goodness, a culture where God's story is paramount. This is what Jesus knows God's story so well that when scripture is quoted to him, he gets at the heart of what the scripture means in his response. And that's what we do. We live in a place as a church where the God's story is always being lifted up. And we learn that story from the time we're little. And that story becomes part of us And so this becomes a culture that is willing to suffer injury to defend what is good and what is holy. I want to close with some words from St. Paul in Romans chapter 8. In Romans 8, Paul asks this question. Uh, Paul is deeply aware of this culture that that should be among God's people of courage. And so he, he has this great rhetoric where he says, what shall we say then? You know, he's getting, he's really getting worked up here. What shall we say? If God is for us, who can be against us? It's a great question. And of course, Paul is not an idealist. He doesn't live in a Pollyanna world. Paul knows, I mean, his friends are dying left and right. 
and people are being persecuted for their faith left and right. And so Paul is not, uh, he's not naive. And he comes in, but he says, but listen, if, if God is for us, then what do we really have to be afraid of? And he really boils it down and he narrows in and he focuses on, it's this love of God. It's this deep abiding love of God that really, uh, that really keeps us grounded and it really reminds us what we have access to and who we are. He talks about the death of Jesus, the one who was raised, who's at the right hand of God and who intercedes for us. So the one who endured the temptations that we face and walked through them perfectly uh, not only shows us that, but he's praying for us right now. Jesus is praying for us. Who will separate us then from this love of Christ? Will anything? And Paul finishes his argument. He says, no, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. There it is again, who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And so I think when we know this, we find the courage of Jesus. Amen.